everybody, and welcome to Nintendo Week for the end of week of May 25th through May 31st. That's not even close to right. No. But I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, <laughs> and I'm joined by Alex Plant and Ben Lamoureux. <laughs> that might have been my bad. Alex Plant? Ow. E3. <laughs> and Ben Lamoureux? What is happening? I don't know. This is the final episode before <laughs> E3, so naturally things are pretty hectic. Uh, As you can tell from that intro. Yeah. Uh, we're recording this episode on Saturday, June 4th, to accommodate, so apologies in advance if any big Nintendo news comes out between now and the Wednesday when you guys are listening. Um, but first up is the news block, so we're going to talk about Mega Man real quick before getting into juicy news about Pokemon Sun and Moon, Nintendo's E3 plans, and more, including a gossip stone segment addressing a rumor that NX will support VR. Uh, after the break, we're going to head to the tea table to discuss our hopes and expectations for Zelda U's E3 showing, and we're going to top it all off with the Glitz Pit, where we are going to pit every starter Pokemon ever in a big battle royale. So, let's head on into the news block. <laughs> So first up in the news block, and I don't think we should spend a lot of time on these because they're pretty old by now, but two big bombs of bad news for Mega Man fans. The first is Mighty Number no. 9, which released an abomination of a new trailer. The CEO of the development team called it crappy and unforgivable, so I don't know what on earth is going on behind the scenes, but the game itself isn't looking great either. It's ugly, it's bland, it's not good. Yeah, this kind of sounds like a classic case of the publisher and the developer not really communicating when it comes to marketing, and the publisher is putting a spin on this that the developer did not intend. But like you said, the game itself looks a little underwhelming. I'm not as down on it as a lot of people are, but I, you know, I played it last year at E3, so I know what to expect, and mm. it's it's not as good as I'd hoped, but it's, it's not a bad game. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's not worth the $60 everyone backed it for, though. Sure. Yeah, I think yeah. people were expecting it to be a special game, though. Mm-hmm. And if right. it's not a special game, then it, the way that it was built, there's almost no reason for it to even exist, <laughs> which is harsh, but true. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of the revival of Mega Man, and if it can't do that, which it's clearly not, then... Yeah. I mean... Anyway, so the other one is that we got a sneak peek at the upcoming Mega Man cartoon, which we've discussed here on the show before, and things are not living up to expectations. They revealed Mega Man's new design, which seems heavily inspired by Tron, and some new story details, which are pretty generic kids' anime stuff. He's a real boy with a double life as this superhero robot. Um, The lead writer still asks fans to give the show a chance, saying that the writing team and the staff, they're dedicated to the fans. But uh, at least in my opinion, what we've seen deviates too far from the heart of Mega Man. And it seems to be for the worse that I'm just not interested anymore. Yeah, I'm questioning the decision to just make another version of Ben 10 starring supposedly Mega Man, because that's really what this feels like. I know it's the Ben 10 team, so maybe we should have expected this. <laughs> yeah, in hindsight. But, uh, story-wise, I would have liked them to rip a little more from actually Mega Man and not this team's past work. Right. I mean, they can they can take, you know, the Ben 10 idea of the changing superpowers and, you know, all that stuff and apply that to what Mega Man already was. They don't need to take him and put him in school and, well, you that, know. It's, it's sad because that, like you said, that's the generic kids show stuff yeah. it's like they took x-men and they made it a high school thing uh when i was a kid and it's 
it's just the pattern that that seems to f- unfold with all these uh, adaptations for kids. Yeah, and it's too bad because I think you know on the one hand that really disappoints Mega Man fans, which I understand that a large target demographic for them is kids. So yeah, they want to introduce kids to Mega Man, right? In which case, relying on old Mega Man stuff is not by itself sufficient. But on the other hand, you know, I think from a creative standpoint, for a television series and especially for Mega Man fans, if you do something more unique, which is what Mega Man already was then, you know, you'll get a show that's more successful, more creative, more original, ideally more popular. Sticks around for longer. Exactly, yeah. When you do an idea that's fresh and unique and hasn't been done in that medium before, which I don't think, you know, the... I mean, I guess there was the original there was Mega, Man Mega Man cartoon. cartoon. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that didn't stick around for that long, and it deviated, at least visually, from what Mega Man was like in the games and in the promo artwork and everything, so... But, so, yeah. I, I don't hate the new look as much as everyone seems to. It, it's a little generic, trony, you know, like you said, but I, I don't think it's terrible. It's kind of in line with what I was expecting, honestly. But I, I just had to roll my eyes at the plot. Like, nothing about it yeah. sounds yeah. unique. And I'm judging it off of, like, a, a, a blurb from, you know, some PR, but it, so far I'm not very excited for it. I don't know. I'll probably give it a chance. I'll watch an episode, and if I hate it, then uh-huh. I'll, we'll cont- I, not continue to watch episodes. I think I'll not plan on watching it, and then if I hear good things about it, I might give it a shot. Like, that's what I did with Yokai Watch, which has actually turned out pretty well. That show is on Netflix, and I can't say I'm not enjoying it. Uh, I mean, I could, but it wouldn't be true. <laughs> um, and, you know, I think, I think there's something similar here. As for the design... I don't think the design idea is necessarily all that bad, but the artwork they released is just not good. It's by someone who is not skilled enough to be doing this. It looks a little fancy. And I hate to, I hate to say that, yeah. but yeah, I mean, I, someone someone on the Gamnesia comments said, "What bad DeviantArt fan artist did they commission exactly. for twenty bucks to make this?" <laughs> that was exactly and it's what like, I was going to say. That's a little harsh, but honestly, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> The thing that's most depressing to me about this is that I'm used to the good quality anime shows from when I was a kid being quality largely because their their art style and animation was just so much better than the Western stuff that was being put out at the time. Mm-hmm. And I don't get that that vibe from this at all. It's not. It yeah. doesn't seem to be aiming at quality art. It just seems to be aiming at kind of common denominator art, and that's not yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Well, uh, let's move on to more positive things, I hope anyway. Uh, I think so. We got a new trailer for Pokemon Sun and Moon, revealing a big swath of new information. The legendaries are officially named Solgaleo and Lunala for Sun and Moon, respectively. Solgaleo is surprisingly not a fire type. It's a psychic steel type, which actually has some neat scientific explanations behind it. And Lunala is a psychic ghost type. The Alola region has five different islands to explore, and the one that we saw before is just the first. And Alex, I know you're going to love this. The Alola Pokedex is inhabited by a Rotom that will come along with you on your journey and talk to you. So in a way, it'll be kind of similar to Dexter from the original anime series. And Rotom is my spirit Pokemon, so (laughs) very good. And it's my favorite to use in competitive battling. Yeah, and then uh, the last bit of info that we learned, separate from the trailer, is that you can scan QR codes to collect Pokedex data. It won't fill them in as if you've caught them, but you can learn a little bit about them and find out like where in Alola they live, which would be hugely useful in catching, you know, 800 whatever the hell number of Pokemon we're going to be at. I would love for them to expand that to Pokemon Go crossover, uh, where you can bring in your Pokemon Go Pokedex data. I know it's 
we'd have to, you know, wait for them to expand Pokemon Go's Pokedex a little bit. Yeah. But that seems like a sure thing. I, I feel like that's something more for, like, Generation 8, which is weird to be talking about, but, uh, you know, game, like, once they see how Pokemon Go is doing, then they can figure out how to better integrate it with the main series. Yeah. Because it does really feel like a, a great tool for interacting with Pokemon, you know, on the go. Um, exactly. So. Um, I guess I'm just thinking of the comments that uh, they're even thinking of having mobile integration with 3DS games, and this would definitely yeah. be a prime contender for that. And we had discussed QR codes specifically, like, last week, I believe. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Again, if we say it on this show, it comes true. (laughs) Sometimes within a matter of a week. (laughs) So, with the exception of the large amounts of water that's giving me Vietnam-style flashbacks to the Hoenn region, (laughs) I love everything I'm seeing about this so far. Yeah. Like, the the region looks beautiful and interesting. Like we talked about before, it seems more immersive. I love the idea of your Pokedex being possessed by a Rotom. Like, this, this is the most excited I've been about a Pokemon main series game in quite a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, Lunala has a 4x weakness to dark, so that should be fun. Oof. Ouch. And bug, too, right? Uh, is Ghost weak to bug? I, don't I think, think so. I think so. I think it is. Um, oh, okay. I'm not the Pokemon Einstein that I used to be. Um, but the one thing that worries me, I do like the Rotom thing, but I am worried that it's going to be too hand-holdy. Yeah. It's going to be too much like Fi from Skyward Sword or like, exactly. Navi. Like, I feel like Nintendo should have learned that lesson by now and known to yeah. stay as far the hell away as they can from that. I could see it being a thing where they do more like Dexter and less like Fi. But um, yeah, but we, but we really just don't we know. know Game Freak is with Pocket Card Jockey. There's a lot of dialogue. Um, I feel like the dialogue in Pokemon has just been getting more and more and more. Um, so that does worry me. I can't say for sure that I think it'll happen, but I just I really hope it doesn't because that will be a huge hindrance to anyone's enjoyment of the game i think it really depends what nintendo's goals are for this sun and moon game because if it really is just to extend kind of the life of the 3ds a little bit longer and capitalize on the existing user base i mean you don't have to i don't think you have to worry too much about uh them trying to be too handholdy because they already have 3ds's they probably already have the last pokemon game but if they want to expand the audience and you know if you look at the long-term trend for pokemon sales it's they're still really high for uh, mm-hmm. Nintendo, but they're they're still on a downward trend. So they may want to kind of reverse that. And the classic Nintendo way to reverse that is make the game more accessible. Uh, and they Quote seem to think accessible. that handholdiness. They think they seem to think that handholdiness is a way of doing that. And I hope yeah. that's not true because it it isn't true. But right. they're uh, who knows what they're thinking. Yeah. Uh, and I, speaking of expanding the audience, going back to Yokai Watch, I was saying uh, I've watched a couple episodes of recently, and the Rotom thing really, really reminds me of Whisper the Ghost, who's like your sort of navigator in Yokai Watch. Mm-hmm. I haven't played the games, but at least in the show, uh, he's got like this. It's kind of like a Pokedex. It's like called the Yokai Wiki or something like that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, but so he's like this ghost assistant who has all the information on all the yokai. Right. And so the I you know the Pokédex becoming a ghost and following you around really reminds me of that and I I don't know how, what it's like in Yokai Watch but if anyone who has played maybe that's a good metric of sort of the level of handholding that we can expect. That's probably true especially when you consider that in Japan Yokai Watch is a legitimate competitor to Pokémon. Right. 
Exactly. So they're trying to look at ways that they can learn from Yokai Watch the way that Yokai Watch learned from Pokemon. Right. Yay for competition right. in the market. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's especially cool since Nintendo's publishing both of these franchises, and they're and now they're trying. It seems like trying to compete with each other, which is re- which I think is really cool. So for the sake of accuracy, I googled it. Ghost actually resists bug. Oh. Oh. Okay. Wow. Yes. Anyway, we were wrong. Whatever. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. No. I don't care anymore. So, let's pivot now to Nintendo's E3 plans, which they revealed is not just for Zelda after all, but we'll get to that in a minute. First up is the Zelda stuff. There will be two demos for the game, which add up to 90 minutes total, which is a huge step up from the 10 or 20 minute demos that most games bring to E3. Uh, Nintendo says we'll get to explore forests, grasslands, and mountains, and by we, I don't just mean those of us attending E3, because Nintendo is also holding a special event at Nintendo NY for 500 fans to go hands-on with the game. Did they actually say forest, grasslands, and mountains? Yep. Yeah, that was because that's like legit pulled from the original Zelda marketing, from what I understand. Is it really? Yeah. Oh, yes, please. Is is encouraging. Yeah, Um, that's really exciting. I like that they're extending these demos so long because, in theory, they could totally bungle this in some way. In (laughs) theory, that means they're they should be letting us explore more than you know do dungeons and uh, right tutorials like the past uh, demo zelda demos have done so i know that's how they're billing it but we all know that they build skyward sword as the most content rich exploration rich zelda ever so did they really exploration rich mm-hmm. content rich i can kind well, of understand. i remember them talking a lot about how you weren't going to be able to tell the difference between the overworld and the dungeons because it was going to blend together so well and that was the opposite of true not not (laughs) true in a really convoluted not accurate way in a bad way (laughs) yeah in a bad way um so yeah i'm hoping that they just dump us into an open space and when we just kind of do what we want but maybe they'll tell us about interesting things we can try that would be my ideal scenario and that's that's really what the heart of zelda is from the very beginning of the series and hopefully for this entry is just unlimited exploration Go at your own will, go at your own peril, do what you want, and see what happens. And that that's really magical. And I think that a lot of the time, games more and more try to build themselves in a way that you get like one of these 10 or 20 minute demos and you can see what the game's about. But I really like that they're not submitting to that sort of idea, and that they're saying, look... This Zelda game is something that you will get. You explore and you do your own things. We don't tell you what to do. We just drop you there and it's going to take 90 minutes. I really, I really am excited for that. Yeah, I I would like to think that this is sort of the beginning of the end for the constructed demo segment for open world games because it's it's not a good showcase for the game. It's a good showcase no, for features totally that they might have added over since the pre- the past iteration but yeah but when people dive into open world games unless they're like the kinds of people who are focused just on the story they really just want to screw around right they don't care about the the constructed narrative they don't care about uh the genius developer design scenarios they just want to run around maybe kill some things maybe just jump on rooftops in assassin's creed like it mm-hmm. there's no reason to tell them what to do yeah 
And I'm, I'm hoping that this signifies a lot of confidence on Nintendo's part, because like you said, most demos are 10 or 20 minutes, and it's usually a very closed-off area where they teach you about the game's core mechanic and then let you run around for a little while. But if they're giving you 90 minutes to explore, that tells me they have to be fairly confident in the content of their game, especially if it's as free as we're sort of predicting it is, you know, based on their marketing yeah. and everything. This is their only game on the E3 show floor, and they're confident enough to tell people, hey, come play this game, this game only run around for 90 minutes. So hopefully that means it's a it's a pretty immersive overworld, is what I'm hoping for. So then, next up, the Nintendo Treehouse stream at E3 will also show games beyond just Zelda, opposing what was hinted before. They're going to start off the stream Tuesday morning, June 14th, with Pokemon Sun and Moon, before turning their attention towards Zelda. There should be news on the games, developer stories, and the first look at live gameplay throughout the stream. On Wednesday the 15th, that's for Sun and Moon, by the way, on Wednesday the 15th at 10 a.m. Pacific, they'll kick off the stream with a Q&A for Pokemon Go, followed by a day of showcasing upcoming games like Monster Hunter, Dragon Quest, and Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE. Still a terrible name. Still a terrible name. <laughs> uh, and finally, on the 16th, they're hosting an E3 2016 Pokemon Special, whatever that means. I'm sure there will be sprinkles of news here and there throughout all three days, but it's it's definitely not going to be the distilled series of announcements we're used to with Nintendo Directs. So if you're concerned, listeners, about catching up on all the news, make sure you're checking in regularly to Gamnesia.com, where we'll have uh, up-to-the-minute updates on all the E3 news we can. We'll, of course, have a special From the Show episode of Nintendo Week sometime during those three days as well. Chances are it won't have news from Thursday's dreams, but we'll see. Uh, be on the lookout for that. You know, it probably also won't have news from the days between this Wednesday and, you know, next E3, so keep checking and Gamnesia if you want to stay up to date. Uh, but anyway, do you guys have any thoughts on these announcements? I'm glad that they've uh, expanded their plans and they're going to be showing off some more games, and especially that there's going to be a big focus on Pokemon. But I feel like the whole slowly trickle-out news over three days thing is just not going to draw a lot of attention because everyone no. else is holding dedicated press conferences with you know videos that can be watched in one sitting or cut up into you know interesting bite-sized clips. This is going to be three days of slow trickle news, and I feel like a lot of the information is just going to get lost in the flood. Well, at the same time, I think a lot of these games that they're focusing on outside of Zelda have already been shown. They're not. They're no. They're no real surprises in store. They're just kind of showing them. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and, I, you know, I think that a lot of these games aren't really going to have a huge market in the West. Maybe Monster Hunter, but I think Monster Hunter can live without, you know, an E3 presentation. Uh, Dragon Quest is kind of like a fan service project um, because they just had already done it for Japan. And so, you know, why not translate it? Sure. Um, but, you know, I don't think any of these games are really pushing to have a massive audience beyond what they normally get. And the audiences that they already have are going to be paying attention to these. So, Yep, that's exactly how I feel. Um, that said, I do find it interesting that they had originally said that Tuesday would be all Zelda, and now they're leading with Sun and Moon, which I find weird and bizarre. Which means that by June 15th, they're going to say, you know what, screw it, NX time. <laughs> yeah. We can only hope. <laughs> no, um, we can't. They did... Well, they did say that they weren't going to show any mobile stuff at E3, and yet they're having a Q&A for Pokemon Go. So, yeah. yeah I think they mean Nintendo's mobile projects, though, because we that's, know that Pokemon Go possible. is separate from that whole series of DNA games. That's true. 
and yeah, but they're probably right. they're not they're, they're for sure not going to show us any of the new ones that they haven't shown yet. That's also true, right? Um, but it, it it just is surprising to me that they're doing that as well uh, because it yeah. seems like their sort of flavor for E three this year is we're just going to show our dedicated gaming projects for this year. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, it's. It seems like they're stretching beyond that to try to fill their schedule, uh, which is good because people were complaining that just Zelda, just just one day of Treehouse Live. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see the same two demos, 90 minutes total, just all day on Tuesday and that's it. Well, and th- Wednesday and Thursday, we knew they were streaming too. So three straight days of the same 90 minutes over and over and over again. That's not going to fly. Yeah. And, and that, that's true even if people who are playing do completely different things in those 90 minutes. Like, yeah. People are yeah. going to get sick of seeing it start off in the same place over and over again. Yeah. Right, right. And even if, even if, crazy unlikely scenario, gave the Treehouse Live, like, the full build of the game to play, then they mm-hmm. would just be showing way too much content. There would be no mystery yeah. left. So, right. either way you cut it, it's not going to work with just Zelda in their schedule. For a game that won't even be out for almost a year, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, that is it on the news block. So next up, let's head to the Gossip Stone. Here we are with the Gossip Stone, where we discuss the latest updates from the old rumor mill. After each one, we're going to go around and weigh in with our final verdicts, whether we think the rumors are true or trubbish. Uh, we've got one rumor this week, which comes from a report by the Chinese newspaper DigiTimes, who claims that the NX was delayed so it could support virtual reality. They said, The device features a 5-7 to seven inch display, controller and joystick for users to play as a mobile gaming product, but it's also able to connect to TV for users to play as a video game system. Nintendo is now planning to add VR function to the device to satisfy the popular trend in the gaming market. Uh, ben noted while writing this story that Miyamoto doesn't think that VR fits with Nintendo's philosophy, and Reggie thinks that the current state of VR just isn't fun. But I'm actually going to call true on this. Uh, I'm not super confident in that, but I do think that it makes sense that with all this stuff about PlayStation Neo and all the talk about Xbox working with Oculus, that VR is a significant enough discussion in gaming, and especially in gaming consoles, that Nintendo would be taking a pretty scary risk not to allow it on NX. Uh, And particularly with mobile devices, we know that things like Google Cardboard make VR pretty accessible. So I do think it makes sense that simply including VR support would only delay the system by a few months. They wouldn't really need to change the system itself, or even any of the games they're making, so much as simply ensure that VR software can run smoothly on their platform when other developers are incorporating it. Um, This all assumes, of course, that what Digitime says about the NX being a handheld console hybrid is true, so a VR headset would theoretically be as simple as something like Google Cardboard is. But I do think there's a good chance that that is what NX is, so you know, if that's the case, I don't think that VR support is at all out of the question. I do think it could explain the delay. So I have kind of two perspectives on the VR question. The first perspective mm-hmm. is, with Nintendo's new strategy, it totally makes sense for them to see VR as just another form factor, just another screen for their uh, platform to support. And so if they really do see it as kind of a big enough market or a big enough that enough people will own these things that they should really build support in, then yes, I do think they'd do it. But on the flip side, we're seeing that uh, for most of these uh, stock, not PlayStation VR, VR platforms, you need a really expensive rig to run these things. Mm-hmm. And with VR really needing a really high and stable frame rate, while at the same time having to render images twice, 
that makes me kind of pause a little bit because Nintendo yeah, that's s- true. said before that they really don't want NX to be un- unaffordable, and this would definitely make NX unaffordable. <laughs> VR is compatible with, like, mobile devices like iPhones and stuff, though. I'm sure NX is going to be more powerful than an iPhone. So I don't see it so much as games like PlayStation VR would use. I see it more as, like, the kinds of smaller games, maybe, like, the Stanley Parable, I'm sure, could run in VR on NX, no matter how powerful NX is. Um, If that's even going to be in VR, who knows? I'm just giving an example. I think if you are aiming at those smaller VR experiences, I don't think that's worth it maybe not like nintendo tried things like that with their gamepad sort of off experiences and i know the gamepad wasn't super popular but like no one cared about Wii street u no one cared about wii u panorama yeah but people like, care about vr that's the difference maybe? i'm not saying it necessarily makes all the sense in the world i'm just saying i think that it's a big enough discussion in gaming that nintendo is looking at it and saying look we got to do something we can't just completely ignore this Sure. Yeah, I, I don't really see Nintendo sort of half-assing it and just having, like, mobile VR compatibility. What an interesting idea is, though, is that uh, we've we've heard rumors that NX or PlayStation 4K or possibly both could be using the mysterious new Polaris GPU, and AMD actually officially unveiled it. Uh, they haven't given a ton of details on it, but it's called the RX 480 and what they are boasting is that it is a $200 GPU that, in terms of VR compatibility, is as good as most $500 GPUs. They're billing this as the, the cheapest possible way to get a good VR experience. So if Nintendo actually is using this architecture, if they're using this GPU specifically, then there is a chance that they could actually have halfway decent um, VR on NX. But again, this is $200 just yeah, for the graphics card. And then you yeah. also have to have a CPU, probably a hard drive. You have to have RAM, probably going to mm-hmm. be a disk drive. And Nintendo has said that they don't want it to be too expensive and that they don't want to sell it at a loss. So, I mean, there is a potential to make, you know, a, a fairly affordable console with with VR capability. But, A, I don't know if the timing's right that this, you know, new experimental GPU that we still don't know anything about is going to be right. uh, in NX. And, and then also, I still just don't know if they can get it down to a Nintendo price point. Because I don't see them launching a $400 console, even if totally. it is an amazing value, considering it would have uh, that good of a GPU in it. I, I don't see Nintendo doing that. Yeah, if totally. it's going to be $400, the lineup itself would need to be that much better to justify the price point, not just the hardware. All right, so final verdicts, guys. True or Trubbish? I'm going to go with Trubbish. I'm also going to go with Trubbish. I'm going to go with True, but again, I'm not headstrong in that, and <laughs> I think that it's going to be weaker and not at all what we might expect from a, a VR idea. So, um, Do we want to talk about... The Mario Kart 8 tweet. So, or is that? I don't know if you guys noticed, but if you turned on your Wii U and the quick and you saw the quick start menu in the last couple days, they're doing a eShop, not promotion, but like they're advertising Mario Kart 8 on eShop again. I'm inclined to think that this is just that and not anything worth reading into so okay so we're we're clearly talking about this i guess <laughs> for <laughs> listeners context um nintendo of europe tweeted good things come to those who wait hashtag mk8 and they posted a picture of calamari desert from mario kart 64 um, and a bunch of people getting hit by the train just yeah by the way so p- 
people have been reading into this saying, oh my god, there's going to be a third Mario Kart DLC pack, or, you know, what have you. So I guess that advertisement thing is you're saying that this tweet is just about advertising Mario Kart 8? So it falls in line with the, something Nintendo's been doing on social media lately, which is posting memes that they're either inventing or just stealing wholesale from other people. That's not even a meme. That's like, they, how is that kind funny? of is. No, what? If you, don't, if you don't wait for the train, you're going to get hit by the train. If Nintendo that's thinks meaning. that's a meme, and second of all, <laughs> Mario Kart 64 with... The Mario Kart 8 advert, like, their course isn't in Mario Kart 8. What are they thinking? So, Mario Kart I, I 8's mean, the current Mario Kart I'm, that they're I'm selling. I'm not arguing in either direction of this. I'm just saying, if that's I the case, if this is just them thinking they're posting a meme, that is so much sadder than I ever thought Nintendo's social media presence could ever, ever be. Well, it, they're either posting a bad meme, or they're posting a bad tease. Like, it's, there's... That's how, that's that's how I see it. I mean, if they're posting a tease, at least they're doing it successfully. If they're posting a meme, this is just like fire that person. <laughs> it's already it's it's a bad pun anyway, regardless because they seem to. Have is it even a pun? They're yes. just how? You, good thing comes to those who wait. You're getting hit by a train. If you didn't wait Puns for the train to go play. by, that's not wordplay. What? I think you have too forgiving a definition of the word wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. I don't know if this tweet means anything. Maybe it is just them. It, it's them calling attention to Mario Kart again. That's all. That's my That's my read. And maybe they're masterminds and they know everyone's going to react this way. Uh, maybe they're just really bad memers. <laughs> that said, please do make more Mario Kart 8 DLC. And yes. if you're not going to, at least port it to NX and make more content. Yeah. We can all definitely. agree on that, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. Battle mode and yeah, Rainbow please. Cup. Okay, so, time for the lightning round. We've now arrived at the beloved lightning round, where we bring you little nuggets of information from the past week. If you want to read more about any of these stories, or any of the ones we discussed earlier, you can check them out at Gamnesia.com. The latest podcast episode will show up in the scrolling feature bar at the top of the site, and on that page, you'll see all these links. Alright, so first up, recent releases and stuff that is now available for you. On Wii U, both classic Star Tropics games and Metroid Prime Hunters are now available on Virtual Console in North America, while Mario Hoops 3 on 3 is now available in Europe. Hey, if you've never played Metroid Prime Hunters, you're actually getting a decent Metroid game this year. <laughs> Yay! Uh, Super Mario Maker got a Shaun the Sheep costume and event course. Hideo Kojima would be proud. And Splatoon got a slew of new weapons as DLC. Donkey Kong Country 3 is now available on the new 3DS Virtual Console in North America. Pokemon players can now download Manaphy through Mystery Gift, and Mew is available in Australia and Europe. Nintendo's line of Vans shoes, backpacks, and hoodies, and more is now available. My wife, being the upstanding adult that she is, is going to be all over those shoes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the Pokemon XY anime series and Hoopa movie are now available on Netflix. Then we got a bunch of upcoming dates to look out for. Normally we just list everything up to a week away plus new announcements, but because E3 is going to be so crazy, this week I'm just going to go over everything we know about for the rest of June, so brace yourselves. June 9th, Ace Attorney 6 launches in Japan. Also, Terraria launches on the Wii U eShop in Europe. June 10th, Kirby Planet Robobot launches for 3DS. That's pulling in mostly positive reviews, by the way, so be sure to check it out if you're interested in platformers or you just want something to play on 3DS. And North America is also getting the fourth wave of Animal Crossing Amiibo cards. 
June 14th is the day E3's show floor opens and Nintendo kicks off their Treehouse live streams. In those streams on June 14th, we'll see lots of cool stuff on Zelda and Pokemon Sun and Moon. June 15th, Nintendo's Treehouse live streams will have a Pokemon Go feature at 10 a.m. Pacific, followed by a day of other upcoming games. June 15th, Japan is getting a novel adaptation of Ace Attorney. June 16th, Nintendo's Treehouse live stream is holding their E3 2016 Pokemon special. June 16th is also when registration opens for the International Pokemon Tournament in Omega Ruby and Alpha Sapphire. June 17th, Minecraft Wii U launches at retail in North America. June 21st, Mighty No. 9 launches on Wii U in North America and Asia. June 24th, Mighty No. 9 and Terraria's retail version launch on Wii U in Europe. Tokyo Mirage Sessions Sharp FE launches in Europe and North America. And Mario and Sonic 2016 launches for Wii U worldwide. Also on June 24th, that international Pokemon tournament I just mentioned kicks off. June 24th is also your last day to get Manaphy through Mystery Gift. June 25th, Sega's holding a party for Sonic's 25th anniversary at Tokyo Joyopolis. June 25th and 26th are the Orlando qualifiers for the Pokken Tournament Tournament. Uh, June 28th, Terraria launches at retail for Wii U in North America. Zero Escape Zero Time Dilemma launches for 3DS worldwide, and LEGO Star Wars The Force Awakens launches for both platforms worldwide. June 29th, Nintendo's whole new corporate structure with Reggie and Shibata goes into effect. June 30th, Australia is getting their Zelda trading cards. June 30th, Minecraft Wii U launches at retail in Europe. And July 7th, Junichi Masuda will hold some kind of Pokemon celebration at Japan Expo 2016. And July 8th, Splatoon Squid Sisters will give a live performance in France. So Nintendo has held a couple of these Squid Sisters concerts in Japan, and they were extremely popular. So this will be the first one that they've actually done outside of Japan. And we've talked a lot about Nintendo sort of trying to expand its brand and get its characters well-known again, like they were household names in the Mm -hmm. 90s. And I think it's really cool to see Splatoon sort of getting this international push now, and it'll be interesting to see. It is a Japan Expo, so it is kind of the Japanese fans, but... Yeah, but, you know, I see it as a testing grounds. They're bringing it to Europe in a Japan-centric setting, but, you know, it's... I think this could bridge the gap and start... Agreed. We could start seeing more of a Splatoon push in the West if, if things like this are successful. Uh, and then finally, a rundown of all the smaller things from the past week. We got a bunch of new information on Ukulele. Yacht Club showed a first look at what it's like to play as King Knight in Shovel Knight's upcoming DLC campaign. The next Skylanders game, Skylanders Imaginators, lets you create your own Skylander. A new Harvest Moon game called Harvest Moon Skytree Village is coming to 3DS. Minecraft's console editions are getting new minigame modes starting next month. Monster Hunter Stories is getting two waves of amiibo that unlock special monsters. Monster Hunter Generations will have DLC costumes exclusive to the West. And Sonic Boom Fire and Ice is getting a launch edition that includes episodes of the show on DVD. Tons of characters from Zelda, Mario, Pokemon, and more are getting all kinds of gorgeous new figurines. A Super Mario Bros. fan proposed to his girlfriend using a custom stage in Mario Maker. Two fans created a full-length metal album based on the music of Donkey Kong Country 2. We'll be using some of that as this week's outro music, so stay tuned. A Canadian Pokemon fan discovered a new species of bee and named it after Charizard. Pokemon fans in Hong Kong are protesting Pikachu's official Mandarin name translation. A new study says playing Super Mario Bros. can be as hard as solving complex math problems. And they're uh, talking about for AI, so that's really interesting. And a Sega survey asks fans if Sonic should cross over with Nintendo, Disney, My Little Pony, and more. Dragon Ball, all kinds of stuff. So that's all we got for this week's news, but stay tuned because after the break we'll be right back with some talk on Zelda U and which starter Pokemon would win in a massive battle royale. In the meantime, please enjoy Bulby's 8-bit rendition of Patched Planes from Kirby Planet Robobot.
we are back with more Nintendo Week. I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, still joined by Alex Plant. E3 is still coming. And Ben Lemoreau. What's up, everyone? We're on the road to E3 and a massive deluge of news for Zelda U. So we thought now is a great time to have a fun tea table discussion about our hopes and expectations for the game before everything we hold dear is proven disastrously wrong. Don't uh, say that. It'll thought, come true. <laughs> oh, no. I'm going to knock on wood here. Um... And we thought that we'd end the show on a fun note by revisiting the Glitz Pit to see which starter Pokemon would be the best in a fight. So without further ado, let's head to the tea table. Here we are at the tea table, the show's classic discussion segment where we share our long-form thoughts on a specific subject, whether it's recent news or something in Nintendo's past, something about the games, whatever it may be. Today, it is all about Zelda U. Our hopes, expectations, ideas, features we want to see. It's all pretty loosey-goosey, so we'll try to keep track of time as best we can, but otherwise, let's just dive right in. Does anyone want to start us off? So... I think something that I and a lot of other people are most worried about in terms of Zelda transitioning to a modern open world format is that the game is going to boil down to you talk to someone, you get a waypoint on your map, and you go there. And that'll be all you do for the main quest, for the side quests, like everything. But what I hope happens is that Nintendo takes a leaf from their own book and looks at uh, how they approached open world exploration and past Zelda games where it wasn't about marking things on your map as much. That would be a nice quality of life feature to make sure you like know where you're going. But uh, it was more about having interesting dungeons and caves to explore uh, when you kind of find a place that you can go that you haven't been before. Um, that'd mm-hmm. be a good way to have... You know, hidden items in the overworld, uh, certainly more interesting than just bombing a wall and finding something behind it. If they decide to go the route of having tons of different equipment options, you could have interesting things at the end of each of these caves that would, you know, increase your skills, increase your stats, uh, change up your fashion, uh, change up your playstyle a little bit. Um, So I think that would be a more rewarding structure than just saying, all right, we've got a quest log for you. Go follow it. Go complete all (laughs) the little marks on the map so you can 100% the game. Like, that's not... I understand why open world games do that because it's very efficient and easy to keep track of, but it's just not that fun. Mm-hmm. At least not for the structure of Zelda, I think. Because that's that really, you know, I, I think it is important to have the story element in there. Even if Zelda's not ever been terribly strong on story, and that if story's not been a terribly uh, emphasized element in a particular Zelda game, you know, a lot of people do like the lore, they like the specific plot lines, and so I, I think in light of that, having just these waypoints that you're talking about would really sort of hurt the the main story through line, I think. Yeah, because it's... Discovering lore in in past Zelda games has been more about just kind of going out on your own and seeing what you can find out. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's structured in a series of quests, it's it's all very constructed and you have to do... You have to find out the lore in a very specific kind of way. And, uh, you know, I think people are looking for a more freeform, less hand-holdy Zelda, so... Yeah, uh, I kind of want to see elements of both. I I really love... Majora's Mask and all the character interactions and side quests and things like that. So I hope there there are some structured missions, especially where you can sort of see your actions really affecting the characters. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, there has to be, if, if they're going to have this huge open world, I think exploration has to be a huge key, and that means not having everything just marked on your map, not just constantly being point A to point B. And Alex, you said something earlier about uh, items and things like that. Lots of hidden secrets, I think, is crucial. I, I would love for there to be optional items, optional weapons, just things hidden all over the place, where it's not you have to go here to progress the story, but 
I want to explore. Oh, hey, what's here? Oh, cool! I found this secret. Yeah, you know, I want great. you to be able to discover kinds, all kinds of things that aren't even necessarily required to beat the game, but just that sort of give you that that sense of immersion and that sense of adventure again. Yeah, that you're you're actually exploring for yourself and not just checking things off a list. Yeah, yeah. like if you look at uh, Twilight Princess, you get items like the spinner and the ball and chain, which I think the ball and chain. I know the spinner did, but they have benefits in the overworld you can get like heart pieces and stuff like that but they ha- they each have a specific boss fight or mini boss fight or what have you where you need that item to win and well one of the criticisms of both of these items is that they basically used that boss fight and then did nothing else but mm-hmm. uh you know i think items like that don't necessarily need to be doing much else if they're not used in the boss fight in the first place if they're only used as these optional you can find them and explore the overworld even more unlock these heart pieces and all that or you can go through the entire game without even knowing they exist and i think items like that would be a lot better served as options rather than something that you get in one dungeon to beat the boss and then never use again mm-hmm. yeah and, and i think that those items would be great used in that way so i would love that and um you know, going back to your point about marking the map and, you know, organizing all this information, I do think it's really important to have something like, well, the Bomber's Notebook in Majora's Mask was mm-hmm. a really effective tool for managing all your side quests. I mean, I, I think it could have been done a lot better, but uh, at least as far as Majora's Mask and the N64 was concerned, it did fine. But... Um, Something that has a really big immersive overworld like this, and especially if, you know, people have looked at this map and said it's going to take, like, an hour and a half to get from one point to the other or something like that. And if that entire map is really content-rich in the way that we want it to be, you're going to lose track of everything you're doing ever. So you're going to need information like in your bomber's notebook, you get a profile on this character, you get the side quest that they have given you and you want to do, you get where this character is located. Um, You're going to need information like these to remind you of sort of the progress on your side quests. And if you've not been interacting with this character or the side quest for a long time, you're going to need that information to remember how to even get back into the side quest without just finding it again. And if you have to find it again, sometimes, you know, it might be easier just to start over, which you can't do. So you're going to need a lot of those kinds of, um, not waypoints specifically. Like a quality of life feature for keeping track of all this stuff that's going on. Right. Rather than the game being sort of demanding that you... Rather than it showing you, do this, 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 and this, and this, it gives you the information that you need to do it, but it doesn't tell you necessarily to do it. When you want the information, too, not just like... Right, it doesn't shove it in your face. face. You have to access it. But you can access it easily. Yeah, I'm down for that. Is what I want. I agree. So on the subject of immersion, I'm also hoping that there are as few loading screens or sort of transitional areas as possible. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I I think that kind of just sort of kills the organic, large, explorable overworld feel when, you know, every every few minutes the screen goes black and you got to wait for a few seconds while it loads the next area. Definitely. And, you know, I know that was just to be expected back in the day, but... With this generation and with this much focus on an explorable world, I think having it be as seamless as possible is would be really beneficial. 
And we talked earlier about how Nintendo claimed that Skyward Sword was going to have not really much of a divide between temples or dungeons and the overworld itself, and I didn't really feel that they executed that well. And I think they have a chance to actually do that correctly with Zelda U. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it'd be really great to just, you know, be able to explore, like, a large section of an overworld and come across some ruins and just continue exploring without the sort of obvious transition from, okay, you are no longer in the world, now you are in temple, go find item, go kill boss. Yeah, and I think with a lot of other open-world games, uh, you know, we've had a huge explosion in this kind of genre in the last couple years, especially since Skyward Sword, and so I think they have a lot of other source material to look at and say, well, here's how we want to address this for Hyrule. Um, And so to that extent, I think that we're going to be a lot happier with the overworld, the open world in Zelda U as far as loading times and whatnot go, um, because they just have so much more to look at and to be inspired by. Going back and looking at the Game Awards footage, and I know the game's probably changed a lot since then, mm-hmm. but um, you could already see kind of hints of how they're going to be managing this, where the the wide open areas, they're wide open and they don't seem to have any real transitions or loading screens, but as they kind of approached the uh, dungeon area where they were fighting the enemies, you could see the map kind of start to narrow a little bit. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think we'll start to see as the areas get more complex and have more kind of design to them, they'll find ways to make sure that they don't need loading screens because... Yeah, and yeah. if they can naturally narrow it like that, that would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I do kind of worry that that will sort of kill the point of the open world if uh, they just end up creating a tunnel within the open world and then it winds up being linear in a way after all. But... Um, but that would at least be a good way to make things seamless. Well, it won't necessarily be so linear. I mean, I, so I'm. you guys know I'm playing Dark Souls 2 right now, and if you look at the way that that world is designed, there are sort of these narrower pathways that can sometimes lead between different kinds of areas to explore. But a lot of them are designed in a way that... Uh, kind of disguise the fact that there are narrow pathways to a different place. Like, one, for example, is you go down a well, and that's sort of the gateway to the next dungeon. There's some other places, too, where there's just, it's covered in fog, so they don't draw as much. Um, Mm -hmm. There are a lot of these ways that can go hand-in-hand with the way the world is designed to make it feel like it is a world you're exploring, but also, you know, not require the game to be loading so much at a time. Yeah. So, you know, I don't think those kinds of constraints necessarily have to limit how we feel the game is uh, in an exploratory sense. I think that they can actually support it. Yeah, you're right, because those the sort of transition areas don't have to be internally linear. Right. Um, it's just that they won't be as open, like, spatially speaking, as right. the rest of it. So that, yeah, you're, you're totally right. And I don't think that that necessarily makes it feel any more or less linear, because, like, if again, if you look at, like, what Dark Souls does, a lot of these different places have access points in common areas. Mm-hmm. So it's not linear in the sense that you go from one area to the next to the next to the next, but it is linear, I guess, in the sense that the pathway from one area to another is a a path rather than a big open world but having a path to a different location that's not a problem i don't think sure since you mentioned dark souls one thing that i'm kind of curious about and i don't have a real answer to this question but i'm curious what you guys think is so in dark souls there's a very the 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 world design is very oppressive but the they sort of give you a moment of relief when you find a shortcut or a checkpoint or a bonfire Mm -hmm. and you know, Zelda hasn't really... Skyward Sword and, and Spirit Tracks kind of dabbled with the idea of shortcuts that, that let you get back to the spot you were in in a dungeon if you die or something. Not like you're going to die, but, you know. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering uh, how you think they'll approach the idea of, like, checkpoints in, in Zelda U. Oof. Because if it's going to be more open, and if it's going to be an open field, it's I don't 
I don't know how exactly that that works. Is it going to be you respawn at a you last visit a landmark when you die? Are you going to uh, like I don't well, know how they're going to handle it. The Miyazaki inspiration is going to go all the way, and you're going to ring a bell and summon <laughs> Kiki to take you from place to place. Um, in all seriousness, I don't know. I think the bonfire system in Dark Souls is actually really, really fantastic. And I think yeah. that the kinds of, like, the bird statues and stuff, like summoning Hilda in, in Link Between Worlds, which is what I was just referencing, those kinds of things don't really feel as natural. Um, yeah. And, I mean, I know, you know, just sitting at a fire and being transported to a different fire doesn't really make sense. It's natural, but it's magic, so whatever. Um, These other ways that Zelda has done it just feel kind of odd. It it feels like they're trying to explain it too much. Sure, yeah. So, I don't know how it's gonna... I don't know how that's gonna work. I hope it's something more like the Dark Souls system where they don't explain it too much. They just, you know, let you be absorbed in the magic of it and um, the resting points can kind of take you from resting point to resting point. But, who knows? I'd kind of imagined the horse being kind of like your home base. But if you're gonna have combat on the horse, it that doesn't it doesn't really work to have the horse be the place you respawn at. Uh, like right. if you were just traveling somewhere on the horse and then you got off and then you explore on foot and that's where all the action took place, that'd be one thing. But you're gonna be fighting on the horse as well. Yeah. Um, so that goes out the window. I mean, maybe towns like Castletown, Kakariko Village, Kokiri Forest, things like yeah, that could maybe they could have inns. That would actually be yeah. that would actually be really really cool uh they haven't done that in a long time inns and i think they can have ways maybe during in the town specifically maybe it ties into like the mythology of hyrule in this incarnation there's some kind of divine presence in every town that makes them a safe haven and through that divine presence you can sort of transport like there's maybe that's where the bird statues come in and i don't think it should be bird statues because we've already done that multiple times but um you know something like that where uh say that there is the statue of a goddess in each town and it's like a little sort of gathering place for the townspeople to pay tribute to the goddess pay their respects pray or whatever and when link goes then you're able to sort of channel that divine presence and warp then from statue to statue which gets you across the different towns yeah yeah let's also you know point out that the zelda really does need to have a fast travel system so yeah yes. oh yes. definitely yes. absolutely no question i mean if wind waker had one this one's definitely gonna need one for sure uh while we're talking about towns though uh do you, what do you guys think about it? I mean, it seems like this game obviously should have towns, so I don't think that's a question. But do we think that towns should function like RPG towns? Should they function kind of like they did in Ocarina of Time, where they're just kind of places where you find out information and maybe take on side quests? Uh, I think it should think? be kind of a mix. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think the way that towns function in Zelda currently, I don't think they should abandon that. You know, I, I think they need to keep the features that make Zelda unique. But I think that they could have more uh, in the way of, like you're saying, inns, like RPG towns where there's sort of a story behind them. Um, and they experiment with this in a lot of other towns throughout the series. But I think that they can really build a much better network in terms of how the towns are interconnected. Like if everything, if every town were kind of like Clock Town, but just for a different sort of branch of Hylian culture, like maybe there's the Ruto version and the, or the Zora version, I mean, uh, and the Goron version and the Kokiri version, you know, there are these different areas that are sort of the central hub of a different location or or uh, biome kind of of Hyrule. I think that mm-hmm. that could be really effective. Yeah, it uh, something that I found was missing in 
Twilight, both Twilight Princess and Skyward Sword, but more Skyward Sword, was that you didn't get a sense that there was a culture. Yeah, right. Definitely. There were ruins, but there wasn't a living culture. You would encounter an right. NPC every once in a while, but that was it. And I felt like they built a culture, but the, like, especially with the robots, but then they just didn't show it at all. Yeah, they, they were missing kind of the trappings they needed yeah. to really express it fully. They had right. breadcrumbs, but breadcrumbs right. are not enough. And I think, I think Ocarina of Time does that expression of a culture the best yeah. and especially if you know the end credits when all everyone comes together and everyone's dancing and partying that's a lot of fun yeah. but um yeah I, I think in terms of culture they should definitely look to ocarina of time yeah and it's it's great because like you said ocarina of time it introduced all these races and gave them all their unique areas mm-hmm. and now we have a chance to see that again but in hd and just on a much 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 bigger scale yeah. they can do so much more with wii u they can flesh out those environments so much more and make them really distinct and individually interesting so i'm really hoping to see that you know it'd be it'd be nice if there's a little more uh human or hylian settlements if there's more signs of civilization in that regard but i'm really interested in just exploring hyrule and seeing the different ways that all the sentient races exist because there's totally there's so many different races in zelda and they could do a lot with all of them with such a a huge hd overworld like this totally uh well time is running short so i think we should probably wind it down does anyone have any last comments they want to get in on zelda you um so colin you've been playing dark souls too yeah after playing that, how do you feel about how difficult Zelda should be? I don't think it should be quite as difficult as Dark Souls. Well, maybe it should. Well, sure. This is It's <laughs> been a it long, long time since I've felt any sort of risk in playing Zelda. And I think that Zelda, especially in things like dungeons and especially the later dungeons, I think there needs to be this sense of risk. There needs to be something at stake every time you try. And in Dark Souls, every time you die, you lose all the souls, which are essentially currency, that you collected. And you you gain souls, for those who don't know, by defeating enemies. You gain their souls, and some will give you like six... Stupid thing is on Do Not Disturb, and I don't know why it just rang. But um, uh, you get souls, so like some enemies will give you 60 souls, some will give you like 400 souls. Um... Every time you die, you lose all the souls you got. You can go back to where you died and pick them back up, but if you die on the way, that one disappears. The last one you had is what's left. So if you collect 40 souls on your way to go get your bounty of 4,000 souls, you know, you're kind of screwed. So It's just like Shovel Knight, but more punishing. Well, yeah, Shovel Knight took yeah. it straight from Dark Souls. Um, so in that sense, there is a really big risk every time you go out and do something in Dark Souls. And... I really want Zelda to feel like that, not necessarily to the same extent, and not necessarily at the same difficulty level, necessarily. Sure, sure. But there just needs to be some sense that there's anything at all at stake. Because in Zelda, you keep all your rupees, you keep all your items, you just go back to, like, where you last saved. It's just the location. So, I don't know. I don't know exactly how I want them to manage it, but Zelda definitely needs to be harder uh, I don't know how much harder, but harder. And every time you risk death, you need to be actually risking something besides just transportation. I think the number one thing for me is it feels like in Zelda games now you can just mow down every enemy because you're so much more powerful yeah. than any of them are. Definitely. And the thing that impressed me most about Dark Souls is the enemies aren't quite on par with you because, of course, they they do you know AI routines and stuff yeah. like that that are pr- pretty exploitable, but... They do a decent amount of damage, and you really do have to keep up uh, with your healing items and stuff like yeah, that. And any Zelda enemy is potions. a threat to kill you. 
Right. Any enemy yeah. could kill you if you, if you screw don't up. dispatch it quickly enough. Yeah. Whereas Zelda, they give you so few opportunities to screw up. And even if you yeah. do, the threat is so low that it, you can bounce right back. Uh, so I'd love to yeah. see more of that. Agreed. Anyway, that's it. That, that's all I wanted nice. to, to cover there. All right. Well, then let's take it to the Glitz Pit. All right. So here we are at the Glitz Pit where we pit the three of us against each other in a quest to see who can earn the most star points. It's a fun little podcasting game segment where you, listeners, decide the winner. And we're hedging our bets on starter Pokemon this week. Last time we held the Glitz Pit, we debated who Nintendo's best couple is. And with an astounding 118 star points, I reigned victorious for arguing in favor of Wario and Waluigi. So, Alex, the championship is now mine, and I shall defend it with great honor as we compete for the third title. So this time around, the idea is, if there were a massive battle royale between all the final evolutions of starter Pokemon, who would reign supreme? We don't want this to turn into a discussion about the actual Pokemon metagame, because... I do a little at bit. That, well, at that point, why not just actually battle them? Um, Let's do it. So, we're ignoring stuff like stat calculations and the four-move limit and things like that, and we're going by more interpretive information, like the Pokemon's biology, uh, what the Pokedex says about them, the moves that they can learn, rather than just a four-move limit. It's more like anime rules than game rules. So, we've got 10 minutes on the clock, we each get 90 seconds to make our opening statements, and the remaining 5 plus minutes are all for debate. At the end, we'll go around and say how many star points out of 10 that we think each person deserves, but afterwards, it is up to you, dear listeners, to decide the winner. We'll be launching a Twitter poll where each vote counts as a star point, and whoever's got the most by the time the poll closes will be officially declared the new champion of the Glitz Pit. Are you ready to rock? Oh yeah. All right. Alex, go! So, my pick is, well, and this will probably surprise a lot of you, it's Torterra. Okay. You may think, oh, but Tor- Torterra doesn't seem like he's that good a fighter, but what Torterra is really good at is outlasting everyone else. <laughs> Just like real turtles, who outlast every other living creature that you can think of. <laughs> so, um, and not only that, but, you know, he, he's, he is a turtle, but he's also extra, uh, he has extra endurance because he's also a continent. I don't think in a sort of real-world battle scenario, any Pokemon will be able to fell a continent. Um, I think he'll. I think he he would be able to withstand pretty much anything that's thrown at him, and uh, the other Pokemon would just get tired out, and at which point he can uh, drop the wood hammer on them. Okay. Um, and he is. He actually. He, you know. He is pretty strong in his own right. He does learn some pretty powerful moves like Earthquake and Leaf Storm, and like I said, Wood Hammer. Uh, he can learn Superpower, the Fighting type move. Uh, and his his stats are pretty decent as well. So he's he's no lightweight, but at the same time, his real strength comes in uh, being able to outlast them, not necessarily overpower them. Okay. Uh, is that is that it? Because you got fifteen more seconds if you want them. Otherwise, we can move to Ben. I mean, Torterra is a Torterra is a slow and steady guy, so he's uh, all right. He doesn't need the extra fifteen seconds. Okay, Ben, <laughs> go ahead. Alright, I am going with Charizard, All right. the original awesome starter. So, Charizard has great stats, he has great access to moves, both physical and special, and he can make use of both of those because he has two different Mega Evolutions. He's the, uh, the only starter Pokemon that has that. In fact, he's outside of Mewtwo, he's the only Pokemon that has that. Uh, so you can... Yeah, but who's the trainer? Can he even Mega Evolve in this? Yeah, I, I'm his trainer. <laughs> you have to think this through. So, 
So I can uh, I can slap an X stone on him, and he gets huge physical buffs, becomes a dragon type, and can do all kinds of crazy physical damage. I can slap a Y stone on him, and it powers up. You can all only the special use one moves. though. What's that? You can only use one. Yeah, but you don't know which one I'm going to use going okay, into the I battle. Okay. Do I do I get okay. to make my opening statement? So you go. Okay, go ahead. Me? Go ahead. <laughs> so going into the battle, he could have either one. You don't know what to prepare for. Okay. You don't know what moves he's throwing. You don't know if he's going to hit you with physical or special. He can fly. Did I mention he's a dragon? Because he's a mother <laughs> dragon. Uh, <laughs> And he has access to all kinds of extremely powerful moves. He has an extremely wide move pool. He's super effective against just about everything you can think of. So Charizard is my pick. All right. Um, so my pick is Feraligator. It is the big jaw Pokemon. It's got a super powerful bite. So any Pokemon without a big defensive body is just going to get ripped apart by his teeth and his savage friggin' thrashing around. Um, it's a pure water type, which means not a lot of type weaknesses. And it's a crocodile, so it's got some pretty mean scales for defense. So it's really only the physical blows that are going to threaten it all that much. Stuff like like uh, like fire coming at it is going to sort of brush off on the scales. And uh, But so... You know, all that stuff, all the fire Pokemon, they're all gone. It can learn Ice Fang to use its jaws and wreck the fleshier grass types, like Venusaur and Sceptile, plus Torterra, grass and ground. That's out of there. It's not going to survive that, especially if you got all the other water-type Pokemon with their ice moves. Um, Feraligator can learn Superpower, a great fighting move to wreck Empoleon, get the Steel-type out of the way. So its worthy foes, I think, are Blastoise, Samurott, and Chestnut. Uh, now, I'm not concerned about those two water types because Feraligator is fast. You know, all its Pokedex entries talk about its blinding speed and stuff like that. Uh, so it can evade the devastating kinds of grass moves that would take Pokemon like Blastoise and Samurott out earlier on. Uh, and I would hope that Charizard can pick Chestnut off early with a flying move, but for the sake of argument, if it can't, Feraligator can learn Aerial Ace. So Chestnut has a lot to fear between that and Ice Fang. And that is my opening statements. We got the Who next five minutes for the debate. Um, I'm going to go first punch for you, Ben. Charizard is fire flying. It's going to get taken out by a rock move before it even has the chance to mega evolve. Especially if it's mega evolved into the Y form. Oh, I don't think it'll take it that long to mega evolve. And once it does, it becomes fire dragon, instantly loses its weakness to water. Uh, but it gains weaknesses to fairy. Are you kidding me? Fairy? It doesn't gain a weakness to fairy. It takes neutral from fairy. Does fairy do half damage against fire? Yep. Really? I have to look up a Pokemon type chart. I don't... But really? then uh, then he loses his flying, and so Torterra can take him out with a ground move. Yeah, there you go. Okay, but Torterra is significantly slower than Charizard, and Charizard is packing every fire move you could possibly think of, which is double effective. Uh, no, it's normal effective no. because Torterra is half ground. Torterra is also a ground type. Uh huh. And Charizard. Torterra. I'm looking has at Torterra's a, page both, right both now, Charizard and it's weak to fire. Are not that strong defensively. So. Torterra is weak to fire. Ground does not resist fire. Doesn't it? Nope. Takes neutral. All right. Well, well either way, Torterra's got intense defense and. Yeah. Uh, pretty decent hp i think so i think, think definitely torterra can take charizard x out with an earthquake and stuff like that it's you know throwing because remember this is a battle royale it's not just pitting one against the other you got to think about which pokemon are going to be picked off first and i think Charizard's what? definitely one of those first to go all right well i can uh, switch strategies and instead of an x i'll come at you with a y stone that makes sunny day activate which also erases its water weakness problems, and it gives an dude. instant solar beam Instant solar beam does not have to charge. 
But you still have to worry about the rock types. What rock types are coming at me? Uh, for alligator can learn a ton of rock type moves. You got uh, Charizard's Tortera, faster sure. than for alligator in his pack an instant solar. So beam. what if it's faster than for alligator? It still has four times weakness. Instant solar beam and for access to reefs. I can run heal away off from rock that. Damage. For alligator goes at blinding speed. I don't see anything about blinding speed in Charizard's Pokedex entries. <laughs> well, he has, has to, he has faster speed in the games. That's for sure. Ah, but we're not talking about stack calculations. But the Pokedex is from the games as well. But yeah, that's <laughs> now stat- we're getting into the philosophical discussion of <laughs> that what doesn't a even make sense. <laughs> you got to be internally um, consistent, Ben. Well, with Charizard's blinding speed, he's going to outspeed no, you for alligator. Speed? I don't see any blinding speed. He's faster speed. than him in the games. If you can use the game's Pokedex entries, then why can't I? We already why can't I use the this rule? That's, you can't do that. If you're well, using while the you Pokedex two are arguing games, over what the rules are, Torterra's used Earthquake a ton and wrecked pretty much <laughs> everything on this battle royale battlefield. Meanwhile, no, no, my Charizard's flying. You mega evolved him. Why now? Okay, but then you still got rock to worry about. Ben, you keep just going I back will to the same stuff. All your you gotta change it up. Cut in half. What's that? You, can, you gotta change it up. Rock is a huge problem for Charizard. If you're gonna go to Mega Evolution Y, then rock is a massive problem. You gotta counter that, but you haven't successfully countered it. But I and will if you go to Mega Evolution X, then we got all the problems we were talking about about the defense and the uh, forget what the other one was. The losing big the ground that made you switch or the losing the right. Well, like That's I said, right. sticking with Y, he can problems. use Will O Wisp, which cuts all attack power in half, making rock not that big of a threat anymore. And he can roost off the damage he takes from that rock because he has access to roost interesting okay he can also dragon dance to boost his physical defense i'm sorry not dragon dance Uh, he can bulk up to boost his physical defense further taking less damage from rocks and boosting his attack higher uh but that's only physical defense there's rock blast there's lots of special rock moves problem well, he gets a special defense boost just for Mega Evolving. Okay, but that's not enough. So how, how are you going to deal with instant Solar Beam? That's I what already I'm told you. For Alligator's going to run away at blinding speed. Solar Beam is a Dragon direct dance, channel boosted. of energy. Charizard, uh, Dragon Dance, can speed boosted. No I can be faster than anything. What? Charizard can Dragon Dance and boost his speed instantly. But that's stat calculations. you go, got to go based on the Dragon biology. Dance is a thing in the games as well. Though, or, I mean, in the anime as well. It's a, it's a move. Okay, but, yeah, well, if Charizard can move faster, but that doesn't mean that the Solar Beam can go any faster. I'm saying that, I'm saying that Charizard wouldn't be able to aim the Solar Beam he's for saying, Alligator he's fast enough. for Alligator's going to dodge run. your Solar Beam. Yeah. Oh, I think that's just an unfair assumption threat. to make. If Charizard, if for Alligator can go at blinding speed, I don't think that's an unfair assumption at all. Well, yeah, like I said, uh, Charizard's faster. But you did... Okay. I know already how few star points I'm going to give you. Alex, you have anything <laughs> to add? Um, well, while well, you two are duking it out, Torterra's been killing everything else, and all that's left is uh, Charizard and Feraligator. Uh, uh-uh. Torterra's been getting hit with all the ice beams, all the ice fangs, especially from Feraligator. Yeah, but Feraligator can't be shooting ice beams at Torterra while he's dodging Charizard. A blast. <laughs> Feraligator's not dodging Charizard. Because we gotta remember, there's all these Pokemon. Who knows if Charizard and Feraligator even have a chance to go at it against each other? He's getting hit with. He's getting hit with Earthquake. He's which isn't super effective, but it's gonna be whittling him down. No, no, but remember, uh, we're fighting all these Pokemon against each other. You got. It's not just Torterra, Feraligator, and Charizard. You gotta think about what's gonna get picked off earlier. What's gonna get picked off in the middle? I think Feraligator. Well, Charizard's the only thing in the sky because isn't it the only starter evolution with uh, with wings? I'm not worried about your earthquakes if I'm flying around. Uh, there is the timer. I, I heard... can also throw... Yeah, okay. Uh, so there's the timer. Um, 
That was about as messy as a real battle between all the starters would be. <laughs> uh, so, the debate is officially over. It is time to go around and rate each other's performance. So, Ben, how many star points do we think Alex deserves? Uh, I don't think Torterra is that great of a fighter, but we were mostly duking it out <laughs> while it was earthquaking. That didn't affect me, since I'm a, you uh-huh. know... I have wings. Except for, uh, when you're, except for when you're not flying, because you're... Well, no, but if we're going by the anime, Charizard can fly any time. He doesn't have to be a flying type to fly. Yeah, but then yeah, Thunder's just going to hit him right away. But then I'm... Who's using anyway. Thunder? Pikachu! Now we're, Starter now we're, in yellow! You told us that Raichu was banned from this slash Pikachu. Pikachu. I said, Pikachu's I said banned. Raichu. In you specifically version, told us in the staff evolve. chat that he was not involved. Ooh. Pikachu. Um, Pikachu's involved. I mean, plus Raichu's there are other stars. Uh, I'm going I'm to give Alex anyway. uh, seven points. Okay. I think he made a pretty solid argument for Torterra. Okay. I'm going to give six. Yeah, same, same here. I think Torterra didn't face a whole lot of... Uh, Counter argument, so I, I don't think that Alex is able to get in this the counter arguments that would bump it up from a more average score like six. But uh, at least for the, right. the opening statements, especially, I think yeah. Yeah, Torterra was really just just sitting there doing earthquake <laughs> while you guys were fighting. Didn't have a chance to jump in. All right, Alex, what do we think Ben deserves? Uh, ben had a lot of counter arguments prepared in advance. Yeah, it seems. I will give Ben a nine. Ooh, well done. What? What? It'll be balanced out by the terrible score column. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to give Ben (laughs) three because I think that though you had a good sort of core principle, I don't think you did a good enough job changing your strategy when you're proposed when you're posed with different kinds of challenges. Um, You know, you kept switching between, well, I could do X or then I could do Mega Charizard Y. But if Y has a problem, I can do X. That's that doesn't fly with me. And then me. So, Colin, you think he needed to go balls deep on one or the other? Yeah. Or or, or just because you know, I, I think a lot of the arguments you presented sort of contradicted each other from one to the other. So, um, I disagree, but yeah, all right. That's, that's the point. <laughs> uh, so, me, how many star points do you think I get? Who are you asking? Both of you. I'll give well, you seven. Okay. You, uh, you had a good sort of idea behind what you were going to do with Fralligator, but... Uh, I, I didn't think it was borne out in the actual Battle Royale. <laughs> I, I like for Alligator as an attacker, but I thought your argument hinged too much on a sort of metaphorical phrase that doesn't really mean it much. What I don't think you could just say, phrase? well, he's fast, so that means no attacks can hit him. So I, I think, think you could have presented no a better argument. Hit him. I was telling you that Solar Beam is a concentrated beam of energy. He can just run away from that. Something more right. like right. Now, It's a large beam like... of energy, though, and there was no charge times. But whatever. The point is, I didn't so, find that argument like compelling at all. Frenzy plant so, he, you're going to have to get the invasion out of the way. We can't go back into the discussion. Well, I'm not trying to. I'm trying to say my thing. Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. So I, I'm gonna say a four just because I didn't figure you presented very many arguments for for alligator outside of that, and I didn't find it to be a compelling argument. But for alligator itself is pretty deadly Pokemon. Okay. So we have all decided what we think we all deserve, but it's up to you guys to award the points. We'll be putting a poll up on Twitter when the episode goes live on Gamnesia.com, and you guys will cast your vote for whoever you think won. So each vote counts as a star point, and whoever has the most when the poll closes will be officially declared the new champion of the Glitz Pit. And with that comes the end of Nintendo week for today. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, before we sign off, I want to let any of you guys know if you fans are going to be at E3 and want to meet up with us, uh, we're going to have a little fan meet up, see how that goes, on Tuesday, uh, 6.15, right outside the Microsoft Theater, Nintendo week, I know. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll hang out and chat and see if people show up and have fun. 
If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes uh, or subscribe to us on YouTube at Gamnesia TV for bite-sized discussions from the show. And please head to iTunes to leave us a review. We're really working hard to make this show great for you guys, so those reviews really mean a lot. If you haven't done that yet, please do. It's greatly appreciated. We're at 66 reviews right now. Let's try to make it to 70. If you have feedback for Nintendo Week, please send it to Colin at Gamnesia.com, or you can find me on Twitter at Colin McIsaac. That's C-O-L-I-N at G-A-M-N-E-S-I-A, or at C-O-L-I-N-M-C-I-S-A-A-C. And remember to send in your questions about Nintendo, about our show. We love engaging with you guys, and we read them and talk about them here on the show, so it's a great way to get involved. Again, that's Colin at Gamnesia.com and at Colin McIsaac. And Alex, where can they find you? You can also find me on Twitter at Legend of Lex. If you can't wait till next week for more of our stuff, you can head to Gamnesia.com to see more gaming news as it happens. We got Sony, Microsoft, Indie, you name it, and even Nintendo news that we didn't have the time to discuss on this week's show. And remember, some of the Nintendo news that happens between now and when E3 starts is probably going to get lost. We're probably not going to talk about it on the show. So be sure to stay tuned on Gamnesia uh, if, you wanna, if you don't want to miss out. On our way out, please enjoy Bramble Symphony from the DKC2 metal album, Shanty Raid. You can learn more about that album and where to get it from our story on it at Gamnesia. Thank you all so much for listening, and we hope you have another great week. I, can I add one thing really quick? Go ahead. I just looked it up. It, it's Pokedex actually says it usually moves very slowly, but it can go at blinding uh, speed when it attacks its prey. Yeah, it can be attacking other Pokemon. So, I don't know about it's the whole dodging It's hard to support its own weight out of water, thing. so it gets down on all fours, but it moves Kind's, fast. Kind's it uses its powerful hind legs to charge the, the foe at an incredible speed. I think you are hinging too much on a single, single point, whereas every one of them mentions something about incredible speed It only in says contexts. it has good speed when attacking, not when That's dodging. only in one entry. For alligator intimidates his foes by opening its large mouth. In battle, it will kick the ground hard with its thick and powerful hind legs to charge at the foe with incredible speed. Again, to charge at the foe, not in Yeah, defense. but it can be it charging it's slow at a different except foe. It can attacking. just be running away from Charizard while it's going after something else. The debate is Meanwhile, over, Meanwhile, since this battle is happening on Torterra's back, he just rolls over, and it's over. <laughs>